You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD plus, and that helps you make energy. It helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD+, even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD+. Check out Qualia NAD+, risk-free, for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash dave15, Qualia NAD+. It's what I use. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. Today's cool fact of the day is that nobody likes arriving at an empty coffee pot, especially computer scientists. In 1991, my second year of university at UC Santa Barbara, the world's first webcam was created, but it was at the old computer laboratory at Cambridge. And it worked at one frame per second, and it provided 129 pixel grayscale image of the coffee pot at Cambridge, so scientists could keep an eye on the pot of coffee from their desks. So literally, all of the porn that was enabled by webcams was fueled by coffee. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash dave for a seven-day free trial. Uh, today's guest uh, is an amazing guy. He's an entrepreneur, an investor, an athlete who runs a multi-million dollar online media company. He speaks all over the world and advises billion-dollar brands. Former football player, a world record athlete, and current USA men's national team athlete for Olympic sport team handball. I'm talking about none other than Lewis Howes, founder of School of Greatness, which is a show that helps people find their own path to greatness. 
Lewis, welcome to the show, man. I'm honored to have you on. Thanks, Dave. Yeah, it's been it's been fun to connect on my show, and now I'm excited to be here. I, I was really blown away by my interview on your show. If if you're listening to this now and you want to hear even more of the kind of banter that you're about to hear, check <laughs> out Lewis's School of Greatness. It's a good show. Thank you. Uh, so, Lewis, Detail Magazine said that you were one of five internet gurus who can make you rich. Uh, is is that actually so? Uh. It depends if you've got a, a clear direction and purpose of what you want to achieve and you've created the expertise and the knowledge and the insights on how to, uh, to achieve it. So I really like to support people uh, with monetizing their passion. For me, I feel like that's what's going to heal the world from uh, cancer, from uh, bad relationships, from being unhealthy, things like that. It's not by actually solving the issue. It's actually doing what makes us the most fulfilled. And when people make money, make a living around what they're passionate about, what they love to do the most, I feel like that's going to give them energy. That's naturally going to make them want to move more. That's naturally going to make them have more compassion in their relationships and not get angry or defensive because they're doing what they love and they're making money around that love. Uh, I love that answer. Is that what got President Obama to call you one of the top 100 entrepreneurs in the country under 30? Like, how do you land that? Like that, <laughs> that was, uh, yeah, that was just an award for entrepreneurs under 30 that the White House held. And I uh, got a nice little certificate from Obama saying that I was one of the top 100 entrepreneurs under 30, changing the world, I guess. So it was cool. And it was a, it was a great honor. But uh, who knows if it was deserving. There's lots of intelligent guys out there. I think I just made the list somehow. Uh, still, that's a pretty cool list to be on. Yeah, right. so I'll I, take it. <laughs> I found all the cool little facts I could about you. I always do that before someone comes on the show. Um, but tell me a cool fact about you that people don't know. Hmm. I really am passionate about salsa dancing. It's one of the things that gives me the most energy and allows me to express my creativity more than any other art form. I've been doing it for about eight years and I travel all over the world to find the best salsa clubs to dance with random strangers and uh, connect in such in just a few moments, in three to four minutes on a song, connect with someone that I've never met before on this language of salsa. And I may not be able to speak the same language with them, but we can connect emotionally and we understand how to dance in unison and we understand how to give and take that it's just such a powerful experience to create that with a complete stranger somewhere in the world. So, so you know Tim Ferriss. You, you must have gone salsa dancing with Tim. I, he's a tango guy. Oh, he's and, tango. Uh, All right. I honestly don't think, and uh, you know, we're friends, so hopefully he doesn't think I'm, I'm putting him down here, but I honestly don't know if he could keep up on the salsa dance floor <laughs> just because it's a completely different language. It's a different art form. It's much like it took me three and a half months of watching YouTube videos every night, like practicing in my in front of my mirror for hours, listening to salsa music constantly, doing group lessons, private lessons, going out four times a week. That's all I did was immerse myself in understanding salsa dancing. It took me about three and a half, four months until I could finally learn how to dance without looking like a big, tall, white dude. 
I, I don't know. I, I tend to think Tim, he speaks multiple languages. I, yeah. I was just at the, the Joe Polish event and I, I had a chance to have lunch with Tim and Ariana Huffington. And he's sure. sitting there next to me asking her how to say stuff in Greek. Like he just absorbs things. So I have to imagine that from a dancing perspective, like he would just be like a dancing polyglot and just like, like yeah. something he just downloaded to his head and it would work. I'm sure he'd be great. It, it just takes a few months, and it's a different language than tango. I couldn't do the tango the way he probably does because I've never done it before. So just a different different art form. Different art form. I, I respect that very well. And being a guy who, you know, I studied computer science, which means it's actually illegal for me to know how to dance. So <laughs> I, that's an area of improvement for me. We'll put it that way. <laughs> so a lot of what I've done in, in Bulletproof, is about kind of beating my own adversity. So you, know, you weigh 100 pounds, your brain starts to turn off, and you're like, okay, I'm highly motivated to actually continue being able to feed myself and you know make a living and all. What did adversity do for you? Uh, like, tell me a story about how you you got to be more on the path of greatness because of something bad that happened to you. Sure. I mean, well, I feel like you know I'm very blessed and very grateful for my life I had an amazing experiences uh, again i feel extremely grateful for the family that i have for the opportunities i had as a child i would say for me i went through a lot of adversity more than a lot of kids but also not even compared to some people in the world so i'm very grateful and blessed for what i've what i've been given and what i've had however there were some definitely uh, emotional traumas i would say growing up that created adversity for me. When I was, I just opened up about this a few months ago on my podcast when I was five and for 20, 25 years, I didn't tell anyone. But when I was five, I was raped by another man that I didn't know. And it definitely ingrained this sense of defensiveness, resistance, untrust, not trusting uh, with people and needing to be right and needing to be the best at everything to prove my worth my entire life without me really knowing it. It was just like I needed to win. I needed to be the best. So I was very driven. So that's kind of what led me to achieving a lot of goals that I set myself. I was very driven to achieve these goals, but I always left myself feeling unfulfilled. I would achieve them and then I was like, now what? I'm still not good enough. I'm still not where I want to be. So that was a big adversity early on but learned to overcome it. And then when I was kind of transitioning from sports, I got injured playing football. I broke my wrist playing arena football. I was diving into a wall to try to catch a ball and uh, snapped my wrist when I was diving into the wall. So they took a bone from my hip and put it in my wrist. And I was in a cast for six months, a full arm cast from uh, my shoulder to my, my fingers, just kind of like this, like uh, the guy from Rookie of the Year who's in this big cast, that movie. And I couldn't use my arm. I couldn't turn it. I couldn't use it. I couldn't work out for six months. And then I had to retire. I couldn't come back into football. It took me too long when I was out of it to come back into football. So my entire dream my whole life was to be a pro football player or a pro athlete. And I didn't have a backup plan. So I hadn't graduated college yet. really didn't study in high school or college. I barely got by just by cheating a lot on tests because I couldn't comprehend. It was hard to remember and retain information throughout all of school. Like I just, I would read a page from the book and forget everything. I read it over and over and over and I just could not retain the information. So all through high school and college, I would say 95% of tests and homework, I cheated in some way, shape or form. 
And I wow. became extremely, I'm not proud of this. And hope all my teachers listening, uh, I apologize. But I became really efficient at getting around the system. When, you know, I would always know I have great vision. This is why I've been a good athlete is because I've been able to see the court and see the field at all times. And and anytime I was taking a test, a lot of them were standardized tests. It was A, B, C, D type of tests. And I kind of BSed on the, 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 the written form or whatever. I could always see about three or four students around me what their answers were. And I always knew where to sit. Wow. So that... I've actually never shared this before. It's kind of funny. It's so heavy, funny. man. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, it was my survival technique. I literally could not go, like, get through school without it. And um, I always had someone tutoring me, but it's like they were doing the homework for me because I couldn't do it. It was just like I didn't know the information. I didn't believe in myself to retain the information even when I really tried. When I went, to, I went off to a private boarding school in eighth grade and was given uh, – I had to take a lot of tests and was given – second grade reading level at eighth grade. So I couldn't really read at all. And uh, I was, you know, I had tutors. I was in the special needs classes all through high school and basically got by from cheating. So a lot of my adversity, what it gave me is the ability to connect on different levels. It allowed me to, I needed to learn a different way to survive in the world. So I started connecting with people, understanding what people needed, what they wanted, having compassion for people, adding value to them in any way possible, shape or form. And whether it be entertainment, whether it be setting them up with another person who could support them, making introductions in the business world. It was like, how can I add value so much so that I don't need to be smart, book smart, in order for you to know that I can be useful and helpful? So that, that's a, a huge admission. And I'm going <laughs> to say something. <laughs> I, I taught at the University of California for five years. Uh, and I, I've taught in junior achievement. And also I, I have some academic experience. Uh, and I'm, I'm going to say something that's going to piss off every teacher who's listening to this right now. And I'm going to say congratulations. And wow. thank you. <laughs> the, the reason for that is, is that there was a set of rules that you were supposed to follow and a set outcome that was demanded of you. And you found a way. And yeah. there are people who have a point to say, well, yeah, but you know, you might have pushed someone else down on the curve. It, it's true. But, but when you're a kid and you're in an impossible situation like that, you could have failed, but you didn't. And you found a way. Yeah. And, and so, you know, it, 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 it's a conundrum. It, it's a moral conundrum. Yeah. But, and I always felt guilty. Yeah. I always felt like, man, this is bad. This is wrong. But even doing that, even cheating... You know, in private school, I went to a private boarding school in high school. They would give us our ranking on the grade card, which I thought was the dumbest thing ever. So it told me the number of where I ranked in the class. And I was always in the bottom four, even cheating, even like with tutors, everything. And I was just like, it doesn't matter what I do. I'm not going to be successful in school. Like I tried everything. It was a challenge. (laughs) It's weird. I know back in in high school, there were some classes where I really struggled. I I actually ended up going to a very easy high school for the second part, which made my GPA go way up because I didn't have much competition. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, there there was always that kind of a pressure. And when I went to college, I I face-planted because I actually had real competition. Like I I just about failed out. I I was just like, like horrified by it. And uh, Michael Moore, I believe the same Michael Moore, who's now a filmmaker, but I'm not positive, advertised a book in the back of the school newspaper that was like how to cheat in college. 
Wow. And I was like, I have to buy this book because it's such black market knowledge. This was like before <laughs> the web was invented, like just the year or two before. Certainly there, there was Usenet and all. Uh, but I'm like, I have to buy this book. And it looks like a little spiral book. And it was horrifying because he went out and he did a survey at Rutgers of the number of students who cheated. And it was like way more than half of them who admitted it. Wow. So I was like, wait a minute, like there's people cheating everywhere. But I didn't use the cheat techniques in college there. But what I did do that honestly helped me get through college and a lot of other things was that just looking at gaming the ABC cards, like before we had random stuff like we do now, teachers would always preferentially choose the, the ones in the middle. So if you didn't know, you could just guess the right one and you could probably yeah. pass the test with no knowledge. So I learned all sorts of stuff like that from that. That's and from funny. Where there's a, well, there's an A, but you can game the system. But that mindset that says like, well, failure is not an option. I'm going to do whatever it takes to not fail. You know, I, I respect that you admitted it and I respect that you made it through. I mean, look where you are today. So... You know, it, it's it's a conundrum. I, I don't I don't condone cheating. Uh, I also don't condone no. ranked testing like that, which forces kids into incredibly tough situations, and it's unnecessary. Yeah, and I feel like you know, I ex- my talents excelled in other areas of creativity and development as an individual, which I feel like they don't teach you in school, and they don't have classes for. And they don't rank you for, you know, in the sports arena, I was, when I got into high school and college, I was like among the top, but that's not part of school. So I was really just trying to get by so I could go play sports and hang out with my friends afterwards. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it's amazing. And, and you, you touched on something else that just takes huge balls. Uh, and that is to talk about the, the feeling of, of defensiveness that came mm-hmm. um, from you being traumatized as a kid. Yeah. Um, I was born with a cord wrapped around my neck. And wow. until I was 30, I had no clue that had anything to do with the way I saw the world. That I was also like really just defensive. A lot of the same drives that you're talking about there, just the need to always have the last word. And honestly, I, I was I was kind of a dick, <laughs> <laughs> um, and I didn't even know it because I. But it was it was like there's something out there that's like you know, uh, c- kind of motivating you, but it's not in a good way. It, it's a it's a fear or, or something like that. And, and that, those come from stuff that happens to you before you're seven. And it's totally under your radar and, until it's not. And for me, all of the most beneficial things that happened in my life happened after I, I worked on dealing with my own automated responses to something that I didn't have any control over when I was very young. Sure. So yeah. kudos for figuring that out and, uh, and being willing and able to talk about it. Um, that's, that's huge. Uh, it's, yeah, I mean, it's amazing. thank you. I appreciate it. It took me until I was 30 years old to finally get out of my own way and start looking at those things and start uh, acknowledging them and uh, figuring out ways to, to work through it and and make a better life for myself. I mean, it's it took a lot of energy and work, but uh, I'm just grateful I did it at 30 than, you know, 50. Yeah, it's, uh, it's an amazing gift. Uh, when I work with coaching clients, which is relatively infrequently now because things are getting really busy, some percentage of them, it's like, it's painfully obvious that they've got some buried automated stuff going on. And fortunately now, like there's all these techniques to like hack into that, like EMDR and neurofeedback and things where you can go back and just repattern it. And you realize that something that would have caused you to be like, all right, I'm gonna have to kill you now. (laughs) It just doesn't have that anymore. And, And you're able to just like, something's different neurologically. So just, just being willing to talk about that has probably helped 
thousands of people who somehow know that something isn't quite right and just they got to figure that out before they're going to get to the next level. Yeah. Yeah. So, so was that part of like, you've done some kind of cool stuff. Like you slept on your sister's couch for a while. And then in a couple of years, you're running a seven figure business. Did you have to deal with that stuff in order to succeed like that? Or are those unrelated? No. Yeah. I mean, I didn't start dealing with that until about a year ago. I'm 31 now. But that time, you know, I was kind of like down and out. I couldn't, I couldn't play my, my sport anymore. I was like, this is all I've been wanting to do as a kid. I have no backup plan. I don't know what I'm doing next. My dad had just gotten in a really bad car accident and was in a coma for three months and had a brain damage that he hasn't ever fully recovered from. He's still alive, but he's not really the same person that he was you know, that I know as my father. So there was like this process of teaching my dad how to walk and talk and basically go through all the motor skills again, which was just kind of like this experience that was heavy in a transitional time for me as well of going through an injury and losing my dream. So I was just like, I didn't have my dad to really kind of back me up. He had a, he was starting to get a pretty successful insurance business and wanted to bring me in as part of the team. And I was kind of like, maybe I have my dad, you know, in the back of my head where he's going to support me with this business that he's got. But I didn't really want that. And so it was kind of like, what do I do now? I don't have my dad to like support me if I need some money. He's not going to be there for me. He doesn't have any anymore. You know, my family was amazing. My sister's like, you can come and sleep on my couch for as long as you need. But after about a year and a half, she was like, okay, it's time to start doing something. <laughs> you know, I was like... All right. I love you, Lewis. Uh, you're my brother. But when are you going to start being able to pay for the bills here? And um, this whole time, I was, I was really doing a lot of experiments and investing in myself. I reached out to a number of mentors early on who were just successful people that I had known and, or met. And I just said, I'll do whatever you need to do. I want to add value to you, but I want to also learn how you got to where you are in your life and with the success you've had in your business. So I met three key individuals early on in my, in my early 20s after this who really believed in me. And then I just showed so much energy and hustle and gave as much as I could of myself to them and their, their mission that through that, I was learning on the job. Uh, one was a, a famous inventor who was really great at design creating products, turning an idea into a physical product, manufacturing it, packaging it, branding it, shipping it, uh, licensing it, and taught me everything about the design and invention business. And he has like 40 products on the market right now, really successful. Another guy was uh, a local networking expert who had a networking business, bringing companies together. And it was a great public speaker. So I joined Toastmasters because I was like, I want to get over this fear of speaking in public because I was terrified. So I said, the only way to do that is to actually practice it over and over and watch myself and, and get feedback and like feel the fear and do it anyways, right? You know, uh, Dr. Jeff Spencer tells me that, feel the fear and do it anyways. And um, third one was another mentor of mine who had qualified at the Olympics in the marathon back in college and was a really successful businessman, great in, uh, inventor and investor and works uh, for some amazing brands. And they all kind of guided me. I, I just like was like, I'm going to give you guys all my energy and I'm going to learn everything you've done along the way. And it was that two-year process where they were just like, told me what to do and I just did it. I didn't, I didn't ask why. I was just like, I'm committed. If you're going to coach me, I'm going to take the action. I'm a great athlete so I can learn to take coaching. And then I can just apply it and take action and get the results. 
those three key mentors really guided me early on, and I'm very grateful for that experience to, one, have the, the want to to find someone to support me, reach out to them, bug the crap out of them enough to give them value that they want to bring me on as a, a mentee, and then do whatever it took to support them in their vision and their business. And by doing so, they were able to guide me to figuring out how to make money eventually. It took a while not making any money until I finally figured it out. So you you did something that it seems like is less less sought after these days, but something like an apprenticeship, where you found yeah. ass kickers and, and you were willing to kind of do a little bit of the sweeping in order to spend time seeing how they did what they did. Yes, I remember one of the one of the mentors I was working with. He gave me a desk. I was doing all these phone calls to to like I was doing PR at the time. I was learning everything. So I was on the phones for like weeks and weeks calling media companies. We had all their information. We were sending out packages for these products to get into kind of like the the Christmas shopping guides yep. for his products from his computer uh, consumer products. So I was on the phone with everyone like following through, emailing them. He put me in the closet in his kitchen for his office. <laughs> he put a desk that fit in the closet. And I was literally in there while people were walking behind me in the kitchen. I'm on the phone. I'm trying to be quiet, like trying to help people to quiet while they're making food. And I'm just grinding away, just like doing what, doing the work, making mistakes, building relationships, seeing what worked, like just testing things. Yeah, it was a great experience. I mean, definitely was not fun at times being broke and uh, feeling like I couldn't support myself being on my sister's couch. But it was, I look back at those experiences like as the greatest lessons of learning how to create something from nothing, how to have a vision, whether it's make a hundred bucks and then go and create that from nothing. And um, it's been valuable lessons. So how do you define being an entrepreneur? Like what is an entrepreneur in the way you think about it? You know, it's a good question. I think an entrepreneur is someone that can create something from nothing. And I consider myself or call myself a lifestyle entrepreneur because I believe there's a lot of entrepreneurs that are prisoners to their own companies that they create. You know, they're, they're great at creating something from an idea, just an idea and making it happen and putting together a team and creating a product or a service or a software, uh, selling it. They're great at that. But then they're overworked. They have so much stress and anxiety. They feel like they're trapped. And so when I saw this with the the people I was hanging out with, the, the uh, entrepreneurs I was interviewing, I was doing a lot of interviews early on to like see where they got to where they are, how they got to where they are. When I saw this, I was just like, why can't I design my life or my business around my lifestyle? So early on, I really said to myself, I'm only going to work if it doesn't feel like work. And I'm just so fired up about it. I'm going to set it up so that I don't have to do all the work all the time. And I want to be able to have the flexibility to focus on my life, uh, my passions, and my relationships more than anything. So if the work gets in the way of connecting with someone in a relationship or my family or my friends, if it gets in the way of my health, if it gets in the way of pursuing the Olympics, which is actually my dream, then it's not the right thing for my vision. It's not the right thing for me to be working on. And there are other things that I could be doing. So... That's how I kind of define a lifestyle entrepreneur is building a business around your life, not the other way around where you're a prisoner to your work and then trying to have fun times on the weekends, two weeks vacation and uh, happy hours. 
Yeah, I spent about 20 years in the Silicon Valley cubicle farms, uh, <laughs> and, and I, I worked on some amazing stuff, and I, I met a bunch of amazing people. But like you said, like that's all the vacation you get, and you want to make sure you're checking your email on vacation, and it does burn you out, and it's yeah. it's not that sustainable, and, and not even it's just not healthy. So I, I have a lot of friends from that time who were kind of like I I, I want to do something else. But I, I just want a little bit of time, and I just need a little bit more energy. But it, it's like you just, you just everything gets sucked into your career, and it's especially when you have kids, it's it's very hard to make that transition, uh, and it may require some big changes. But when you do, it it's pretty liberating. So kudos yeah. to you for just not getting stuck in there for twenty years like I did. I mean, yeah, I think I'm, you know, I appreciate that. I think I was also, I'm very grateful that I had a sister who was like. You can stay on my couch for a year while you figure it out. You like I was I didn't need to have a job right away. I think if I needed to, then I would have probably be, you know, it might be a different story. But I had that support. Um, I wasn't making anything, and I was living off ramen noodles and macaroni and cheese. But I was living. You know, I was I had a roof and I had some food here and there. So that's kind of the way I decided to, to live for a while. All right, I. I think that's that's amazing. You know, you you had an opportunity to to step back, and even though you were staying on someone's couch and, and eating mostly crap, you were uh, <laughs> all you, the things that I'm not supposed to eat in your diet book. <laughs> uh, that's cool. You know, survival though. At that point, when you have a job, you got nothing to eat. Uh, there's nothing wrong with eating whatever's in front of you to survive. And you, as, as soon as you got to the point where you could kick ass, you improved your nutritional intake. Intake. It's amazing how that works, right? <laughs> exactly. Uh, you got to have enough money to eat, and eating uh, processed whatever is better than starving. So, right, no problems there. So then, you've overcome a lot personally and as an entrepreneur. Uh, what are the misconceptions that that stand in the way of the average entrepreneur who wants to you know, perform well as, as a human? Well, I would say that you know the first three, four years that I was kind of like growing my business from making zero dollars to once I started to learn how to make money, it was like I fixated on it and I was like, I'm going to do whatever I can to make the most money possible because I never want to feel broke again. So I spent, you know, 12, 14 hours a day really focusing on making money. So I made over $5 million in sales in about three and a half years once I started to learn how to make money. And uh, what I realized is that there is a period of time that when you're starting something out, if you don't already have the capital, you don't even have the experience or, or something that you're going to have to put in a lot of time and energy. And for me, the time didn't feel like a lot of work, but I was suffering from balancing healthy, uh, living a healthy lifestyle, working out and still eating the right way. And so what I realized is that if I was to do it all over again, I would really structure it in a way that I was able to eat better, work out efficiently or move because I was just literally just stuck to my computer. I loved it so much and I was really passionate about it, but I was stuck to one thing. And that led me to being overweight. You know, my family called me Fluis for Fat Lewis because I was 30 <laughs> pounds overweight and I was getting like heart palpitations every now and then. And I was always, I couldn't really sleep because my mind was just always thinking and I was just like, I got to make money. I got to make money. So I would really recommend, you know, finding some time in the day to make sure that you're doing some type of movement. And, you know, you talk about just being active and moving. You're standing up right now, I believe. Uh, so keeping that movement going and then focusing on the, the energy you put into your body, the foods, because there's definitely a performance level that you create 
with the amount of food you have. And I was uh, I was definitely up and down a lot. It's funny. Um, check check this out. There you go. <laughs> uh, that, the sound you just heard, and if you're watching, you saw the camera move. Uh, I'm at a stand desk. Uh, my friend Steve and you yeah. started the company, and, and I'm advising him uh, on you know, how to how to succeed entrepreneurially because it's kind of cool to not stand all day or not sit all day. Like different yeah. positions, different heights, a little bit up, a little bit down. Yeah, you're right. Like building that in, I, I never had a cubicle that did this before because there was like cubicle yeah. envy from all the other people, and it just. You know. <laughs> Well, so a lot of what you're talking about reminds me of, of some of the things that Stephen Kotler, uh, the author of, of Rise of Superman, and the guy who created the Flow Genome Project, um, he's keynoting at the Bulletproof Conference, little plug there, September 26th or 28th, bulletproofconference.com. Seriously, the most amazing conference I've ever planned in my life. I'll be there for part of it. Uh, I'm stoked, just stoked to hear that you're going <laughs> to be there. Uh, in fact, uh, I'll have a camera crew there, and uh, we'll make sure we get a photo and maybe even record a little bit more of a podcast bonus with you in person. I'm, I'm stoked on that. Perfect. But I wanted to ask you specifically around flow. That's what, what actually made me think of all that. When's the last time that you were in a flow state, and how did you get there? Mm. You know, that's a great question. I'm actually developing a free experimental workshop that I'm doing in a week here in L.A. just for like some friends to, to actually see if I can create this for anyone or support facilitating the creation of getting into a flow state, getting into the zone, because I've always been able to do it as an athlete, but I've never been able to teach others how to do it or create that for other people. And I've always wondered what is it for me to actually get out of my head and get into this being in the moment, being present so that I can allow my, uh, my practice and my, my body and what I've learned to take over when the moment matters. And it's really about creating magic in the moments that matter, right? If we have a, a job interview, if we have a speech, if we have a sports performance, and you know, if you're putting on a conference and you've got the opening keynote, you know, it's like, how are you going to step into this flow state that just is magnetic to the audience? They feel like, wow, this guy is in the zone. Like he's in the pocket. He's doing everything. Like he's not even thinking and it's just like connecting and landing and we're inspired. We're on the edge of our seats. You know, when you're, if you're an actor, how to get into this state is something I'm really inspired by. And when I had Steven on the show, it was like just cool to, to get his ideas on this. You know, I think there's some exercises that everyone can do. One is visualization, is really visualizing the entire performance happening in your brain and your head before it actually happens and feeling the feelings of it happening. The biggest thing that I hear about people which isn't able to get people in the zone or in the flow is uh, fears and their survival, their survival strategies, right? So they're afraid of messing up. They're afraid of people are going to, they're going to get embarrassed and people are going to laugh at them. They're afraid that they're going to look stupid or silly. They're afraid of their image. They're afraid of their ego. They're, they would need to be in control and you can't be in control when you want to be in the zone, you've got to surrender control to the moment. Uh, so these things that people are resisting, and in order to resist, uh, in order to get in the flow, it's kind of like a river with a dam. You know, there's the dam that blocks the flow of a river. And the dam represents control, represents image, ego, needing to look good, all these different things. And when you actually surrender and you let the dam go, you can flow and be in this graceful river, right? That goes wherever it needs to go to get to the end destination. And so visualization is one thing. What I've learned from sports is that I used to walk the field the day before 
every game. I used to walk the field as a wide receiver. I would line up where I was going to line up and go through the mental reps in my head. I would actually jog it out. I would walk around the entire field. I would imagine myself catching it. I would go through the act of reaching out on the sideline and catching. I would go through everything possible that could go wrong as well. So what I also like to practice with people is an exercise where before you're going to get up on stage, really write down or have someone work with you on this. What is the worst thing that could happen? What's your biggest fear right now? And what's the worst thing that could happen? So express all of your biggest fears. Uh, I'm afraid that I'm going to forget what to say and I'm going to go completely blank. I'm afraid and then have them write down everything that they're afraid of after that or have someone communicate with you and ask you, okay, what else you're afraid of? So I'm afraid that I'm going to forget what to say. I'm afraid I'm not prepared enough. I'm afraid that the lights are going to go off, that someone's going to boo me, that people are going to walk up and distract me, that cell phones are going to go off and keep going through the list of fears of all the things that could go wrong that you're afraid of and really just let them out and then say, okay, well, what if this happens? What if the lights go out? What if you forget something? What happens then? Well, then I feel stupid or then I feel like I'm a failure. Okay, then what? And keep bringing out then what, then what, then what. At the end of the day, we're just going to feel embarrassed or we're going to feel like, you know, it's going to be a a bad moment. But really, every moment is neutral in my mind. And we decide our perception of it is what it becomes, reality. So we can laugh it off and be like, oh, actually, I just forgot what I was going to say and laugh it off and go back into something and uh, realize that like, okay, the worst thing can happen is X, Y, and Z. You're still alive. You still have a family, you know, you still have basic needs met, so you're not going to die. So once you get past that, then you can get back into getting in the zone and get out of your head. That's a couple exercises is visualizing it. I do a lot of guided visualizations where I create them myself and go over and listen to my own voice to kind of reassure me and uh, get me into the zone. I do the questions I have someone ask me like my biggest fears and I go over that. And then what I really like to do which I think allows people to get in the zone. And hopefully this isn't too much information, Dave. What I really like to do is getting in the zone is a way of being. It's not a way of thinking. It's a way of being. It's stepping into this action and letting go of resistance. So what I really like to practice is this, something I learned in sports psychology back in sports. And everything I do in life and business is based on my sports experience. And what we learned uh, early on was stepping into someone that represented who we wanted to be. So for me, it was Jerry Rice, right? So I stepped, every time I stepped onto the field, put the pads on, I became Jerry Rice. I watched his videos. I saw how he moved. I was like, now I'm Jerry Rice. He's entering my physical body and I'm embodying Jerry Rice, right? It's like I almost gave myself permission to let go of it being me now. And now it's like, I've got this other superpower inside of me. And this way of being allowed me to step up, whether it allowed me to overcome my fears, even though I still had the fears, it allowed me to step up in a confident physical way that let me just take action. So those are a few things that I do. You sound like you you studied Napoleon Hill, you know, thinking very rich, <laughs> pretty well. You know, a lot of those techniques, you know, are, are well known, but they're not well practiced, and and it yeah. it shows. Um, I didn't even know that he wrote that in those books. Uh, so, some of what you're saying there sounded sounded very familiar, uh, but it, it's funny. There are multiple paths, but he was just one of the first Westerners sure. to write the stuff down. Before that, you sure. know, Buddhists and 
various other um, people who had spent generations looking at what people do have little tidbits here and there uh, right. and sort of accumulate it. Uh, that's, that's remarkable. And it, some of the things that put you in a flow state are things that scare you. So like at the conference, uh, working with uh, the flow genome project, like we're building a swing, like a 20 foot tall swing that where we tie you to it with electrodes on your head and like spin it around to, to literally put you in one of the neurological states that make it easiest to go into flow state. And I, I didn't know about this till I got to know Steven and when I look back on this, I typically am in a flow state when I'm speaking, when I'm podcasting, I'm in a flow state, when I'm on stage. But the reason for this isn't something I've ever talked about. And I used to have a, a fear of public speaking. I even used to stutter a little bit because my brain just wouldn't go fast enough. Yeah. And I would sort of get flustered and I would stutter. And it was enough that I don't think it stood out for people, but I was really self-conscious about it. Uh, when I was a kid, I even had like OCD stuff and I would like want to like, you know, do this with my fingers called skimming <laughs> or I'd like want to scrunch my nose uh, three times or like all that weird stuff and like, oh, that's gone. But the first time I really did something uh, meaningful on stage was this group called the Web Guild in Silicon Valley. Like when we didn't even know what a webmaster was yet and there was like 500 people in a room and because I worked at 3Com, I'm on stage and I'm like, I I'm about to crap myself. Right. So I went up there in a state of absolute terror and I completely rocked it. Like first time you ever have like 500 people like laughing at a joke you cracked, you're like, oh, my God, like I'm not going to die. Yeah. <laughs> and by the way, Microsoft was the butt of the joke, just so everyone listening knows. <laughs> but I still remember that. And I, I became really good at public speaking. And it was partly because I was so scared of it. But I think that that flow state stuck with me because it was what put me in that state. And now I do my heart rate variability exercises. And with all the, like the 40 years and stuff, I, I go on stage and I'm just, I'm, I'm just full of passion and there isn't any fear left. And, you know, I, I've nailed it on CNN and, and all these places. But I think it all came because it originally started as like one of the most terrifying things I could think of. Yeah. So you just made me think about that when you talked about your own experiences there. So thanks. That's cool. Yeah. And I think the fear allows us to like either crumble and really mess up. We either get in our head so much about the fear that we, we do mess up. We forget our lines. We forget what we're going to say. We, you know, we fall down a mountain because we're so terrified or we like let go. We surrender to the bad outcome. What could happen? We surrender to looking bad, to messing up. We surrender to that happening. We actually do know or how we do perform and uh, we go into that state. It's uh, again, I, I don't know all the answers and I'm still trying to discover it myself and how to like do it any moment and show others how they can do it. But uh, it's, that's why I'm excited for what Steven's up to because it's just really cool to learn yeah. this stuff. There's, there's got to be some science behind it and it's a state yeah. that maybe maybe deserves study but hasn't been well enough described by enough people to even be a, a noteworthy state. But yeah. people who've experienced it more than once or experienced it in their daily work, like they're generally happier. And I certainly didn't experience that most of the time. And, and I've been trying to make myself more like that. Um, and I want to nail a couple of practical things with you because we're coming up towards the end of the time we've got. Sure. So th there's two things that I, I promised myself that I'd ask you. One, I, I just blogged about this. Uh, I took a photo of my workstation with all these cords hanging down behind it because I've well, because it keeps going up and down. The cords keep falling down. What does your workstation look like? Like, like 
but just the physical little thing. You're an athlete. Sure. Your guy spends time at a computer. Like, like, how do you set it up so that you feel good? Yeah, I mean, right now I'm living in a sublet because my, my unit is under construction, this amazing unit that I love in, in West Hollywood. So I have just a, a general IKEA desk. It's it's not the typical setup that I normally have. But usually I have a lower desk than I can sit in. I've got one of these nice chairs. I forget what they're called, but they're the uh, whatever chairs. A lot of the chairs that all the top executives have or something chair. there. What are they called? Like, but the yes, 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 that one. So I've got that, but I stand up a lot. So I put like a I put like an additional kind of desktop on top of my desk. I don't have the fancy desk that you have. I got to get one of those. But I put an additional. If I want to sit down, I sit down in the chair. And if I want to stand up, I add this like a little additional desktop thing, and I stand up and work. It's just a simple rectangular glass desk that I have. And uh, it's in my School of Greatness studio where I record everything, but it's also kind of an office. And I've got this amazing balcony on the 11th floor looking out of all of the West Hollywood Hills and all of, all of L.A. And uh, it's just an inspiring environment to, to create from. So you're, you're not too far then from Santa Monica where we're opening the first Bulletproof yeah. Coffee Shop. I'm super stoked yeah. on that. I'm excited to check it out. We're, we're going to the Wi-Fi and I'm there. We're going to drag you out of your, your cool standing slash sitting setup and just uh, <laughs> make you get some coffee. That'll be your exercise for the day. Exactly. Oh, no, your movement, not I'm, your exercise. I'm down. <laughs> uh, I'm down. Yeah, let's do it. All right. That was one of the big questions. So you stand sometimes, you sit sometimes, cool. And yeah. you're not walking on a treadmill all the time, which seems obsessive no. compulsive to me, but hey. <laughs> all right. LinkedIn. <laughs> I, I was the biggest LinkedIn fan ever. I, Ten years ago, I taught it in my business school, like how to use it because no one had heard of it. But now it's like, seems like it's kind of maybe come down a bit. So what what's the deal with LinkedIn? It's tough, man. I mean, I think, uh, you know, I was using it for years and I was on there hours and hours every day. And it's what really helped kickstart my business. It helped me build my first kind of really solid foundation of an email list that I was I hosted 20 events around the country in one year and all I did was use LinkedIn to promote them. I was getting 300 to 500 people to show up live. So I was really, uh, you know, I was using them to promote webinars and I was selling products. I probably made my first million dollars in sales from products online based on the groups and the email list I had built on LinkedIn from those connections. So really powerful back in 2009, uh, 2008, 2009, 2010, around then. As these other websites and social networks have grown uh, and how Facebook has developed into more of a business uh, sector as opposed to just for college students where it was for me when I was in college is just for college students. I remember when it just came out and it was I, I remember when my school became unlocked and we were finally in the Facebook when it was the Facebook. <laughs> I remember, yeah. And you had to have the, the college email address and it was like they're only opening up to certain schools at a time. As other sites have evolved... I kind of got overwhelmed with LinkedIn and it wasn't as effective for me. They weren't being as innovative and growing in a way for my needs. But for other people, they it still may be really powerful and effective. But now I rarely go on there. I'm much more of a visual fan myself of connecting with people and of promoting my own ideas and, and content. So I really like Facebook and Instagram uh, a lot more than than LinkedIn now. And I just, I've got well over 25 or 30,000 connections. I probably have about 5,000 connection requests right now that I just haven't had the time to go and accept everyone. <laughs> I get a couple couple hundred a day. And it's just, again, it's it's probably, there's probably a lot of value still there, but it's just not, it's kind of like I'm burnt out. It's like I'm done playing that sport. 
Uh, well, well said. I, I found it to be <laughs> remarkable for my career. I mean, one, one of the yeah. one of the cool jobs I had, I, I was a head of marketing for a startup based in Cambridge, England. Even though I was living on the West Coast, so I, I like you know it was, it was a huge raise I got. Like I fly to London every six weeks, uh, and it was it was kind of amazing. But it was all because of LinkedIn, and I it was such a big thing. Uh, but now, like yeah. you, know, I don't know how many requests I have. I, I, I don't know somewhere between five and ten thousand connections, um, but I just find that it's, it's less uh, less of a thing than it was two or four years ago. Yeah, you know, and I, it's important to be where people are and to be on top of mind awareness. Obviously, it's what our it's our goal, right? Mm-hmm. The more relevant and the more top of mind awareness we have, the the, the better. And. People aren't logging into LinkedIn all day long and hanging out there. They're hanging out on Facebook or Instagram or, you know, I'm not really using Twitter as much to, to look for information and connect with people, but I know people are still there. I want to be where people are and I want to be on the top of mind of where they're hanging out. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking to hire a, a developer and I'm looking to hire uh, another executive assistant. And I'm thinking we, we might advertise them on LinkedIn, but we also advertise on Craigslist. Like it, yeah. it's not as big as it once was. Sorry, that that's cool because I know you've been one of those big LinkedIn fans. But it's shifted for you as well because I, I think we might be in the same boat there. And, yeah, and for people exactly. listening, people come to Bulletproof Radio because we're talking about personal performance, and I touch on business stuff less than you do on your podcast. Uh, and I, I don't want to go too far in that direction, but I figure almost everyone has a job or a career. <laughs> so sure, sure. knowing what to do with LinkedIn seems pretty important. And if you're an entrepreneur listening, you, you know like how important that can be. Yeah, of course. So, all right, a couple more questions and, and then we're out of time. One of them is, is just like, what's your biggest key to success uh, that, that you've come up with so far? Because you're one of those guys who, you know, you've, you've successfully blended the, you know, the details magazine, you know, this guy will make you rich with like, I'm a pretty good athlete as well. So you've got both universes, but across mm-hmm. them both, biggest key to success. You know, there's obviously a, a handful, I think, of keys, but the biggest is for me is being clear and having so much passion and energy about what I'm clear on. So there are people with lots of great ideas, but they're not clear on the direction they want to go. So they have a lot of passion on everything, but it's like, it's hard to really be enrolled in that person because you're like, well, what are you actually doing? With me, I get very clear on my, my vision and my goals and the things I want to want to be a part of and then i put all my energy behind it like i am all in and so it's like you're either coming with me or i'm finding else someone else to come with me but here's where i'm going and i want you on board type of mentality and then my that might be coming from my my athletic and sports background of just being like fully committed to the my goal of the season and what do i want to achieve but people are inspired by passionate people at least i know i am and if you're trying to create something, you've got to bring the passion. You've got to bring the that you got to show that you're inspired, so that other people are inspired in being a part of it. And you don't have to be perfect. Like I definitely am not perfect. Uh, I'm definitely you know not the smartest guy uh, by any means. And uh, I make a lot of mistakes and I mess up just like anyone else. But I go all out with passion. And I think that's been. A valuable lesson for me to know that I don't need to have all the answers. I don't need to be the smartest guy in the room. I don't need to get a specific degree and I can still achieve what I want if I've got the passion and the focus to get it. That's awesome. And that probably counts as one of the other two things I'll ask you for in the final question. 
Um, um, but you could decide if it does or doesn't. Uh, top three pieces of advice for people who want to kick more ass at life. It's, it's really not about sports. It's not about being an entrepreneur. It's just about being a human being. But yeah. the three most important things you've ever learned. Get very clear on your vision. Okay, that was kind of that first one I already got from you. Yeah. All right, the other two. Get very clear on your vision because if you don't have a vision, then where are you headed? So you got to know where you're headed. Get very clear on your vision. The second one would be, man, I really feel like when you can master the body, you can master anything. So focus on your health and mastering the body. And when you master the body, you're really mastering the mind because the mind is the discipline it takes to master the body. Amen, brother. <laughs> yeah, I so, love that one. <laughs> yeah, so master your body because, again, you can do anything once you've taken care of your physical tool. It's all you have is your tool. And then the third, the third that just came to mind, I would say there's probably a number of other things I would add, but the third thing that came to mind right when you asked the question was surrounding yourself with powerful and inspiring coaches. And again, I would not be able to create what I'm creating or doing what I'm doing if I did not have the most incredible team of mentors, coaches that I invest in and hire for everything. I have a, a coach for my relationships when I'm dating, right? I have someone that I talk to because I'm not an expert still and I'm always learning. I have a coach for business that I pay. I have a coach for just life lessons that I pay. Uh, I've got a, a trainer for my body, like a, a, a sports trainer who does rehab on me. And then I have a coach that trains me to work out to prepare for my dream and my goals. I have a coach in every area of my life. And then I, ha I hire an amazing team of people to support me on doing everything that I suck at. And I feel <laughs> like those are the three keys that I would say to having an epic life and achieving greatness on every area of your life. Being clear in your vision, mastering your body, which means mastering your mind, and then surrounding yourself with people to give you feedback and support you on achieving that dream. You snuck in a, a fourth one there. Uh, there was maybe a subbullet there, but it, it was so <laughs> profound. Hire people to do the stuff you suck at. Like, like yeah. double down on that one if you're listening to this. And by oh the way, gosh. if you're Amazing. in college, pay the money to have someone fold your laundry. No, no joke. Yes. Like, seriously, you probably suck at that anyway. <laughs> and yes. like, really, even if you're working like I did at Baskin Robbins in college, scooping ice cream, you're probably still going to come out ahead if you get that time back. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. I'll tell you this, you know, I've had a hard time sometimes talking about this because sometimes I feel bad about it based on the way people respond to me and the reactions, but I really don't feel bad about it. Uh, because I have a full-time assistant that does everything for me. She is incredible and she loves what she does because she knows she's a part of my vision. We're working on a vision together. It's to serve 100 million people to make, a, make a living around what they're passionate about. And I can't do what I'm doing on such a high level without her supporting me. She literally makes all my meals extremely healthy. She's the most incredible chef. She does all of my domestic cleaning, all my laundry, everything. The, my place is clean and perfect every single day. I'm fed every single day what I need to be fed as opposed to running out and trying to go get stuff myself or spending two hours cooking and cleaning, which I'm just not that great at. It's fun every now and then as like an activity, but it's not what I want to be doing to serve my mission. And um, she schedules everything, takes care of all the things that take extra time for me, that takes me away from doing what I do best. And it's the greatest 
asset I have and the greatest support I have is having a full-time assistant that does everything for me that I don't do well. Do you ever feel a little bit helpless because you're so coddled? She's gone right now for a week, uh, and I'm like, geez, what? I'm like, I gotta clean everything, and I gotta go. Like, where's my food? <laughs> like, you know, I've been, I've lived on my own without any money, and uh, you know, scraped by for years, and just had a laptop, a guitar, and a couple of suitcases with clothes, uh, where I wasn't making much, and you know, I'm very resourceful, so I know how to like step back into this resourceful way and do everything on my own. But it's really nice to have someone to support me, so. Awesome. I, I'm with you there. And uh, this is something that, that's really important. Also, and you're just dropping a lot of knowledge here. For people listening, when you get to the point in your career, and, and it's sooner than you think it is, uh, that you can afford to have a personal assistant, local or remote, who can help to take stuff off your plate, uh, it, it, is, it is something that, that just transforms your productivity and like you've never seen before. Yeah, because if you're spending four or five extra hours a day you know, the one thing I do do is I make my bed every day. So it's not like I just give up everything. I make my bed. I make sure like my stuff is organized, but then everything else is taken care of because I want to have like, um, you know, some ownership of what my life. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and the thing I'll say is that those four or five hours a day of just running little errands and the energy and the mind space that it takes to create that takes you away from doing what you do best and what your vision is. So again, if your vision is to create something that's going to inspire people, going to help people lose weight, creating an awesome book, to, if you're thinking about all these other things that aren't focused on that, at any time, it's going to get you out of the zone. And when we're in the zone, we create from a space of unbelievable magic. When we're out of the zone, it's resistance, it's hard work, it's time, it's energy, it's exhausting, and it's not our most creative space. Oh, wow. That, this, is, this is amazing, amazing advice. Uh, and I'm, I'm grateful that you're sharing it with people on the show. We are out of time, but first, tell people how they can hear about your podcast, where they can find you online, and any of the other things. I don't know if you can talk about uh, what you're doing with your book yet, but uh, just tell us how to find sure. you, what coordinates. All these links will be in the show notes. Yeah, the best thing is lewishouse.com. I've got a, a couple episodes that go up from my podcast there each week. Uh, the School of Greatness podcast on iTunes. Feel free to subscribe there and listen to an episode if you like. If you like Dave's show, which I'm assuming you do, they're very similar. They're both about reaching the highest levels of human performance. Mine's about greatness, and uh, it's more business and health and lifestyle focused. Um, so the School of Greatness podcast, lewishouse.com. I've got a course that teaches people how to make six and seven figures a year with their information using webinars as a tool. So you can learn all about that over at my site, lewishouse.com. Lewis, thanks again. Thanks so much. If you haven't had a chance, check out the new Bulletproof Airscape canister on upgradedself.com. It's a canister you can use in the kitchen to maintain freshness of anything, but especially your coffee beans. It's a 64-ounce stainless steel canister with a special seal. You can push down the lid so it gets all the oxygen out, which means your coffee beans stay fresher and other things that are likely to have problems from humidity in the air, things like mold forming on them, things like product degradation. That becomes much less of a problem when you can just suck the air out using the simple lid. A human upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. 
The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.